Welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. Today, I am joined by Hani Rashwan, the co-founder and CEO of 21Co, who were the first company to launch a crypto exchange-traded product all the way back in 2018, and who currently have an application for a Bitcoin spot ETF in collaboration with ARK, waiting for approval from the SEC. On this episode, we talk all about how the institutional mindset has or hasn't changed around Bitcoin and crypto over the course of the last few cycles. And given how significant that narrative is right now, it's a conversation I don't think you'll want to miss. Bitcoin Builders is sponsored by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated entirely to Bitcoin and Lightning. Check them out at wolfnyc.com. It's Wednesday, September 6th. This is Bitcoin Builders. Let's go. Hello, friends. One quick note before we dive into this interview. So when I first signed Hanny up to come back on the Breakdown Network, I was thinking that I was just going to do it on the main feed because 21 Co. isn't a Bitcoin-only company. As you'll hear, they have products across a lot of different crypto assets, including some things that I think the average Bitcoin builder listener, frankly, just won't be interested in. That said, the reason that I wanted to play this show on the builder's feed is just how important the institutional and in particular the Bitcoin spot ETF narrative is right now. You'll hear in my conversation with Hanny some pretty firsthand knowledge about how institutional investors have or haven't responded to the troubles in the industry over the last year and a half. But given this is the Bitcoin Builder Show and given that 21 Co. isn't exclusively a Bitcoin-only company, I did want to give you that heads up right up front. For those of you who are not interested, don't worry. The focus on this show is going to remain firmly in the Bitcoin realm, as you will see with another interview later this week. But for those of you who are interested in Bitcoin in the larger context of the markets and traditional investors, this is one that I think you'll enjoy. With that, let's dive into my conversation with Hani Rashwan. All right, Hani, welcome back to The Breakdown, or I guess Bitcoin Builders in this case. Excited to have you back. It's been a long time. As we were just discussing, the industry has changed quite a bit since the last time we were, uh, we were talking uh, in this capacity. It's a completely different world, though. Yeah. No, it's, and so what I want to do today is dig into a lot of that. But for people who are familiar with you or, uh, or, or 21 Shares, tell us a little bit about, about what you do and uh, what you spend your days on. 21 Shares is the world's largest issuer of crypto exchange-traded products, ETFs, ETPs. We have uh, the biggest product suite from a simple Bitcoin ETP all the way to some baskets, short Bitcoin, staking, uh, exchange-traded products, etc. So we, we look at what we do as building bridges into the crypto world and essentially making it easier for people to access any specific strategies or be involved in, uh, in crypto in a very easy way through their bank or brokerage and very, very soon through tokens as well. And so one of the things that's interesting about you guys is just the, the longitudinal experience that you have with this type of product. It's kind of like this running joke that the perpetual next bull narrative has always been the institutions are coming. But you guys have kind of been at, at the edge of that and at the forefront of that for, for longer than the vast majority of people who are playing around this space. When did the company actually start? So the company listed the world's first crypto physically backed exchange traded product at the end of 2018, November 2018. So we're actually about to celebrate the five-year anniversary of our product suite this November. 2018 was a rough, uh, speaking of rough times to launch, what was it like, you know, just because I think it's it's so hard to remember 
the emotional experience of being in those periods. And I think that they're highly useful, even if it's just from like a psychological self-preservation standpoint. But was that timing predicated on just when, you know, what was the catalyst for that being the time? Was it just that's happened to be when you were doing it? Was it more strategic than that? Was it based on just when you had to wait for regulatory approvals? Like, how long had you been working on things before that? Yeah, it seems like a, a very clear and obvious idea now. And, and even our home base in Switzerland, a lot of our competitors have copied us and, and moved there. Back then, it really wasn't super clear. And a lot of people completely disagreed with us. You sort of have to be both contrarian and right to create some magic. And we lucked out in, in that. But even then, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. A lot of the people at the company are not from this era of the company. And going through the current bear market, the few of us, because the company was much, much smaller back then, but the few of us that are from that era remember what it was like building the bear market. Just to illustrate how bad things were, we slaved away, slaved away, getting the first $5 million in seed for the product. And we launched with just one ETP. It was uh, an index of the top five. If I recall correctly, a couple of days before we launched, Bitcoin Cash had that war with the fork. And so we had to drop one of the five elements. And then the day after we listed on the Swiss Stock Exchange, I want to say that our market cap decreased from 5 million to three and a half, just because that was, that's how volatile things were back then. And that's where we were in, in, in the bear market. We really, we released very close to the top. The timing ended up being fortuitous, but it wasn't exactly planned in this manner. We were very clearly poking around, trying to make something happen for about a year prior. And it just so happened that the timing was what it was. But we really did our research. On the theme of being contrarian and right, no one took Switzerland seriously. No one took building an, an American company outside of the United States seriously, especially uh, one that was targeting the ETF. And it's, it's funny because at no point did we give up on America. At no point was America not very important for us. But we thought that the best way of doing that, given how America would take its time a lot more than other more nimble, smaller jurisdictions, is let's go get billions of dollars of AUM, get all this experience elsewhere, and then bring it here. And so that's, that's what we ended up doing. We looked at 27 different jurisdictions around the world. Switzerland was absolutely a huge part of the reason why we were able to build this product suite, because there was regulatory clarity there. And we worked with our regulators to make that even better. It's also a good base for, for everything that we're doing in the future, because a lot of people look at 21Co and, and, and 21 chairs, which are our ETF line, as an ETF company. But the way we see things is this is a company that builds bridges into the crypto world. For some investors, for some customers, an ETP may be the best way of accessing something, DeFi. But no one wakes up in the morning and wants to buy an ETF. Some people wake up and decide, I want to get exposure to DeFi. And so it may be easier for some people or in some geographies or maybe some demographics to have, say, an ERC-20 token that represents a basket of DeFi assets or a Solana token in their phantom that does the same or an exchange-traded product, exchange-traded fund, exchange-traded note. And it is our job to provide those options to the end customer in whatever format, in whatever geography that makes the most sense for them. And so that's how the company transformed from really launching a single ETP that was historic at the time. But we've used that to build a lot more. How much do you think, when you look back, you just made it quite clear that it was never sort of a, you know, 
going global instead of going to the U.S. It was just sort of a rational calculation of what you know how long the U.S. was likely to take, which has certainly been borne out by by, by experience. How much do you think it was just a also a byproduct of who you guys were as a team that you were willing to go be international and do the things that it requires? Because a lot of the moat when it comes to that sort of business is just actually being willing to take the time to figure out an entirely different regulatory apparatus or set of regulatory apparatuses, which most companies just don't have the, not even just the business appetite to do, but the human appetite to do in terms of time in hotels and planes and all these sort of things. It's, it feels like one of these things that in some ways it would push you to both like an older entrepreneur and a younger entrepreneur, an older entrepreneur in the sense that anything sort of, you know, that touches traditional finance rewards experience and, you know, perspective and all those sort of things. And just comfortability with regulators. But on the flip side, you know, the grind that it takes to actually do it, I would imagine, probably benefits someone who's sort of younger and able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, no one else thought that it was a good idea at the time. And we were just fixated on where is the best place to do this. There are two things that I think people dismiss that, that enabled us to rapidly grow before our competitors took notice. And one is, I'm a history student, and I actually studied history in university. And I think no one appreciates our history too much. No one really looks at it. If you look at a lot of financial history, it's very, very obvious that in some cases, in some sectors, the US is often at the forefront. But there are also a ton of financial innovations that came to the United States later, not for lack of trying, not because the United States didn't want to have these things. Uh, American entrepreneurs weren't trying to have these things. But because for one reason or another, the United States regulations wasn't there, it moves a little bit more slowly than other smaller economies. And those were some of the themes that we had identified. There were things with some commodity plays uh, came to the US in far different formats from other geographies. Cannabis stocks did the same things. Some of the uh, ADR kind of innovations happen in this way. And so if you look at history, it wasn't a crazy playbook. Do something else, not in Antigua or the Seychelles or something like that. Do something in a, in a reputable known place that people trust and are familiar with, like Switzerland, and then use that as a base from which to expand. The other piece of it, as you touched on, is our willingness to do that. It's actually really funny because at the beginning, we know a lot more German now, but I didn't even speak German at the beginning. I didn't know a single word. I grew up going to French and English schools. And my co-founder and I felt very comfortable with the, the French and the Italian part of Switzerland. But if you know anything about Switzerland, it's like 65%, 70% German speaking. It's, it's really majority German speaking country. And that was the one translation of the website that we actually could not vet ourselves at all. And so that's how, that's how much we lacked familiarity with this place. But to your point, we were willing to pack up, move to a completely different place where we knew nobody. It wasn't a you know, traditionally great place to start companies. It's expensive. It's not, it doesn't really have a strong startup culture and all of that, but it had enough of the benefits that we correctly identified. And we were willing to just pick up and move and, you know, in my case, learn a new language alongside it. And I live, I live between New York and Zurich, but I spend most of my time in Zurich where our headquarters are now. That was just a deep dedication to, to trying and figuring out what is the best for the end product and therefore the customer and changing everything around there. I don't think the company would have been successful if we 
had based in London, which still has yet to approve one. And, and you know, we have a competitor or two there that end up not doing as successfully as, as we have done. Or New York or San Francisco, where I left San Francisco. I've lived there eight years. I went to university in New York. Very, very big fan of this town. But it, it made the most sense to start this overseas. And, and we just were willing to go for it, learn new languages, move to new places, and figure it out. And I think there's something here about, I don't know, the early bird gets the worm. Those that put in the work can win in the end something. But we did a lot of these unscalable things that in the end are a big reason why we're so ahead. Okay. So things, you know, you, you start off deep in the bear market, because if we're in December of 2018, we're about to hit in January, February of the next year when we get down to like 3,500, right? Yep. So then kind of what what is 2019 and 2020 like? When did you start to kind of feel a shift, you know, especially kind of post-COVID? Was that institutional narrative starting to pick up for you guys or did it take much later into the year? You know, from a media perspective, we were starting to see the first nibbles. You had Paul Tudor Jones in May, you had Sailor come out in August, September, start to do his thing. But where were inflection point moments for you, I guess, is the way that I'll ask it. Yeah. So the first year was uh, was all right. Nothing crazy happened. I think it was a, yeah, it was a slog, honestly, getting from that first 5 million to 20 million or so. I think we were in that for probably a year, year and a half. It was quite a, the 20 to 30 million in AUM was longer than we would have wanted it. We started listing a few more products. So we launched the Bitcoin exchange traded product fairly quickly in January, then Ethereum, then Ripple, and so on. We really believed in the future and we knew that this was cyclical and the bull market would come back. And that once the bull market comes back, which we don't control the timing of, we will be ready. Our products will be ready. That ended up happening in a lot of cases. So we launched a Solana product before it was hot, but also before Solana Summer. We had no idea that Solana Summer was coming, but our Solana product was the fastest product to hit 100 million in AUM. And that was just because it was there. And we think a lot about availability and having things uh, built before they even need to be commercialized because we really care about having the, the biggest product suite in the space by far. But it took a while. And then there was a period of, I want to say, 12 to 14 months where we went from 20, 25, maybe 30 million in AUM to over 3 billion. And the revenues that came with it, all of a sudden, we noticed that not only were we profitable, but we're wildly profitable. We could go after a bunch of other things. The company had been in this fortunate situation because this is my third startup and I had not the greatest experience selling my second company just as a result of some of the VC dynamics that came with how I raised. I didn't control as much of the company as, as I would have wanted to. I didn't control the board as much as I would have wanted to. And that changed the trajectory of the company in a way that I did not agree with and that I thought was perhaps a little bit short-term sighted. And so part of our earlier sale was that, and I really believed in two things. One, I believe this could be a massive company. I thought there was an opportunity to build a crypto-native BlackRock. To this day, our underlying infrastructure is called Onyx because Onyx is a BlackRock, and that's just our insider name for it. And I thought this would be a massive opportunity, and I really believed in, in crypto. The other thing is that I thought that if that's the case, again, looking at our history, looking at the history of the internet, protocol designs, PayPal arguably was a crypto company when it first started, and then it just wasn't the right time. We just had the feeling that this would take a minute. 
And everyone is so short-term sighted. VCs sometimes are too drawn to specific hot sectors that are hot for the short term. Think about how many tourists came in and invested in crypto that are not there, et cetera. And so we wanted to also position the company from the start to both dissuade mercenaries from joining, because we think they're bad tomatoes in the batch and and they will ruin everything, and to incentivize long-term behavior. So we have a few really weird quirks in this company. Ophelia and I, my co-founder and I, are on seven years vesting, for example. That is absurd. The average is four. But then we did that top down so that we can, across the board, our minimum vesting is five years and 18 months. 18 months cliffs, five years vesting. Some of our execs are on six years vesting. But everyone in the company is sort of really energized about a long-term vision that we know will take time and that we know that we're committed to doing. And so it was a mixture of all of these that allowed us in the last bear market to really surf this much more comfortably because we had we had patience, we had belief in the sector, and we were just focused on the only the things that we can control. None of our competing dynamics with anyone that in the end, you know, may have seemed crazy on the outside, but was actually pretty inferior in the offerings or anything that is just outside of our control. And I, and I think that's a big part of why we had such rapid growth and came out of nowhere without too many people for the longest time knowing who we are until all of a sudden we are a much bigger force. Okay. So you guys kind of have this overnight, but not really overnight success, or, you know, th- things, <laughs> start, things, all, start, yeah. things start accelerating. People start noticing. But then we hit the last two years, which before we we were recording, you you said you felt like you've been at war for two years, which I think is a, a, an apt analogy. What has that period been like? And in particular, I'm interested not just in your experience as a company, because every company that has survived this period deserves a you know a, a gold star. <laughs> kudos, yeah. But also just from the standpoint of shifting conversations with this sort of class of institutional investors that you guys are particularly well yeah. positioned to understand what, what they're feeling and thinking. So two questions, one on the institutional side, and then the, what was your first question, remind me? That's the bigger one, you know, more, more so than just sort of, you know, your, your own experience. I mean, obviously, you guys, I'm sure, have had to navigate quite a bit, but I'm particularly interested in kind of what the real, I guess maybe a, if a different way to ask it is that I can speculate all day long about what I imagine the impact of these news cycles being on institutional investors who might have gotten excited last time or people who are on the fence or whatever, you actually have those conversations day in, day out. People are making decisions about whether to invest with you or not, whether to take their money out. How has that transition or how has the last couple of years been around that? And maybe to sort of, you know, that's part one. Part two is bringing it up to current. Have you felt any sort of shift? You know, where would your assessment be in terms of where those kind of attitudes and feelings are now? I have a very cool answer for you. Working so hard for so long in the last bear market, because I think we really lived through most of the last bear market, was highly helpful in navigating this one. Although this one is the bear market from hell. There's nothing. I've been through, this is probably my third bear market in crypto as, as involved heavily as, as I was. And it's significantly worse. There are greater damages, more blood, more tears, more sweat, more confusion, more doubt. Like I've never seen at the beginning of this bear as much doubt as we had last year, for example. But certainly working in the last bear was, and having the long-term focused perspective was very, very helpful. Here's some cool numbers. Everyone looks at our AUM in dollars, 
Most investors look at it in dollars, the venture capitalists that we attract. We certainly report our financials in in dollars and, and things like that. But actually, the way we track it internally at the company is we track it by underlyings per share, which means like how many Bitcoins are we holding? How many Ethereum are we holding? And the reason why is that if you have a long-term enough perspective, you believe that crypto is going to be bigger tomorrow than it is today. And so a little bit counterintuitively, the best time to get inflows for us and our favorite inflows are bear market inflows, because the bear market inflows that we'll get will be potentially at a price of 15K. To your point, you know, the the Bitcoins that we got when Bitcoin was 3,500 or 4,000, infinitely better than the prices that we encountered later. And so the cool thing is that we've seen very little outflows. The prices have gone up, the prices have gone down. Of our 40 or so products, I want to say mid-20s are at or within 5% of an all-time high in terms of number of coins underlying. What does that mean? It means that we, we raised 1.2 billion in 2021. We probably only raised 200 million or so last year, but the 200 million may end up being worth more because it was raised at depressed prices. And so people still believe, people are still in, no one has sold. And in fact, we've seen people add to their allocations. There were periods where people were very worried and scared around the FTX debacle, around Luna's failure, around Three Arrows failure, which makes sense. But overall, bit by bit, people have been doing that. And then a lot of institutions have come in, in both family offices as well as private fund managers. It was a period where we got the first couple of pension funds that have made small allocations to crypto, and they're tiny pension funds. They're not the, the major ones that you're talking about or that you would know, but we think it's a start. And we are now in the midst of speaking to additional, much larger institutional investors, including pension funds, who are doing the work internally to make nine-figure hundreds of millions of dollars worth of allocations. And so it feels like we've this time is both more painful but very different in that no one is arguing that this is going to zero anymore. I think the majority of people have, have realized Bitcoin, Ethereum are definitely here to stay. A lot of the other stuff as well, crypto overall. And that's been a consistent theme around the world. And you see this with the countries that have had maybe more draconian regulations and then completely switched. And there's some very big economies that have either made that or have come uh, or are, are reviewing it and, and will probably come close to changing some of their regulations now whether that be the UK and the, and the work the FCA is clearly doing and, and flagging, or China, which completely changes tune after realizing how inevitable some of this stuff is. And that translates very directly into institutional investor interest, institutional investor flows. And so it, it's sort of like security tokens. It was always going to happen, but when it happens, we still don't know. But I think that it is closer than it's ever been, and, and I have demonstrable proof to show that with our numbers and our conversations. I want to drill down on this a little bit because it's a super interesting data point. What has the sort of turnover been like? And what I mean by that is, is it the people who sort of were, you know, were in and buying with you guys and call it late 21, early 22, they just had diamond hands and they they held through these crises? Or was there sort of a, a natural shift where there were still enough folks in that sort of institutional investor class 
that saw, you know, the blood on the streets and took advantage of that. So there was a, you know, a shift in perhaps who was holding, but net, it still kind of came out to, you know, to your point within 5% or whatever of all time highs in terms of the underlying. I think it's, it's um, probably mixtures of both, but it probably leans more on the iron hand, which like one of the reasons why I, I love this space so much is that there's an almost irrational mission-driven culture around why a bunch of people are in this space. And it's not even, it's not really about the money, although the money is nice and, and we all want to make more of it. But actually, people believe in this shit and they're willing to, to hold and, and they're willing to go through so much intense pain. Like if you're still around in crypto on September 5th, 2023, kudos, good for you. You've seen a lot, and I think you deserve whatever success you're about to get in 2024 or 2025. So I think there's a fair bit of that. But clearly, after the choppy waves recede, you start seeing people who have always wanted to put money in, but maybe the price ran up before they had an opportunity to take a look back at it and and go in seriously. Yeah, it's super interesting. I do think that one of the, I mean, it's not underappreciated for people who are in this space, but I think it is from the outside. The power of these sort of psychological conviction floors that are very patternistic in crypto. You know, I think Bitcoin set the template for this where, you know, at every given period, the floor at which there are more Bitcoiners who will just not sell, you know, (laughs) it just grows and grows and grows. There's always this basis. And so one thing that you've definitely seen is you've seen other crypto communities that mature, they start to get some aspect of that, right? There are now Ethereum people who feel that way. And you better believe after this cycle, I think there will be Solana people who Mm -hmm. feel that way. Now, that wasn't guaranteed, right? It could have gone a very different direction. I would argue NFT people feel this way. I would argue that there are a lot of subsectors of crypto. I mean, look, I am by no means super into NFTs, but there are a bunch of, you know, pictures ultimately that I own that have gone down tremendously in value, but I really, I really like my penguins. I really like, you know, my, my, my lions. I really like my camels or whatever. And I, I just have them. And I think I'm not the only one, although obviously the, the markets are much more volatile. And that irrationality is a big part of why we have a shot at creating the future here, because everything else is against you that you sort of need to be irrationally in this because there were so many logical points in the last 10 years for people to completely abandon the space. And the ones that have stayed have been vindicated and, and we're experiencing some of that as well. But it's really hard to do that unless you're being a little bit more irrational. And, and one of the beauties of crypto is all of these communities and sub-communities that have proliferated that essentially allows you to go through the pain, not by yourself. And then when things are really good, we, we celebrate together. And it's, I've never seen this in any other sector. And it's one of the most beautiful things that, I, that makes me truly love this space. Do you think that that sort of mindset mentality, the sort of, the, again, these, these psychological bases, because they are so endemic in Bitcoin and other crypto you know, sectors, parts of the crypto community, that they've translated into institutions to some extent in that the people who sort of like spend two years, three years trying to get their firms invested, it ends up being sort of like a, a longer term conviction than just sort of going in on a whim at the, the cycle top. Yeah, it's definitely a longer term conviction. And I think they're comforted by the fact that 
a lot of people who have been in crypto have been there for a long time. You see all the statistics about how little it actually moves, how people are just holding. We have a hodling culture. Our first product was a basket of the top five, and it started our index line, which is HODL. The ticker is HODL. It's a huge part of our culture. And we see it with, you know, even epic failures like Luna. I didn't sell my Luna. In fact, I bought more as it was hitting, I think, two or three dollars because I thought there's a potential good bet that it could come back. I didn't lose that much money on it. I understood the risks and things like that. But you see a lot of these kinds of examples where people are fine with experimentation, people are fine with taking chances, and you're very mission driven and willing to go through both pain and time to get there. And, and that's very difficult to compete against. Let's bring it to what is clearly the most significant sort of narrative discussion right now outside of just straight up regulation, which is Bitcoin ETFs in the US. So first, from a trajectory standpoint, obviously, you guys launched internationally first. When did you first sort of apply for US-based products? Or, or what, what is your history with US-based product applications been? Years ago. And a lot of this is public um, knowledge. You can, you, can, you can Google it. I think we've been applying for years. It was very obvious that American consumers wanted an easy, accessible, trusted way of getting access to crypto. There are a lot of reasons to, to use stocks um, as part of you know, your RIA accounts or, or wanting additional benefits. There are real reasons why you'd want it through an ETF especially if you're a traditional fund manager. And, and that's part of what the big deal here is, is that there are conservative estimates that perhaps up to 10% of crypto is going to be in ETFs within the next three to five years. That's sort of what we, what we go after, and especially the big stuff, especially the Ethereums and Bitcoins of the world. And you sort of see this, this level. It's not a crazy amount if you look at, for example, how much Ethereum is in Lido or some of these liquid staking protocols and derivatives. It does make sense that you can attract this. And the American market is so deep, it also starts opening up a bunch of other geographies around the world, notably a lot of places in the rest of the Americas, in Asia, in the Middle East. And so it's a huge opportunity to on-ramp a large amount of people to crypto and to Bitcoin, which is why people keep trying again and again. And we, we're making progress. America just has a very public filings process. And so people know about all these status changes and things like that, that, that might be too esoteric for other markets. But it's actually not super different from insert a big economy here that we've been trying to get into for years and years. There are a few countries, not just the US, where we've been trying unsuccessfully for years and years. And behind the scenes, we make progress. Behind the scenes, we're talking to regulators. We're very, very excited about our partner. We're excited about bringing to American consumers a, a regulated and an accessible product. And we're confident that it's a matter of time. And, and we're very intent on bringing what we've been providing for most of the world to American consumers and customers as well. So you guys have an application in right now with ARC. Obviously, we can't, we can't talk too much about that. But what has your perception been, sort of broadly speaking, around Obviously, BlackRock came in, filed their ETF a couple months ago, and that set off this absolute frenzy of refilings and everyone sort of assuming that they knew something. And that was obviously followed a few weeks later by the Grayscale decision. I mean, 
How have the last kind of, you know, a couple months been for, for you guys as, as relates to sort of your assessment of the American landscape for a Bitcoin spot ETF? It certainly seems that things are moving in the right direction. We don't know too much about the ramifications of the grayscale decision, for example, mostly because it's such unprecedented, uncharted territory. The SEC does not get judgments like this on a regular basis. You could probably count on one hand, maximum two hands, the number of times that the SEC has, has gotten something like this, that Grayscale itself doesn't know what this means. The SEC is still deciding what this means. We'll know in the next few days on that. But it's very clear that the main reason that the SEC has been using to deny all of these ETFs for much of the last decade has now been struck down, has been taken off the table. At the same time, crypto as an ecosystem, as a sector, has certainly grown up. We have proper um, custody. We have regulated custody. We have a lot of regulated exchanges around the world. We have products and companies such, such as 21Co and 21Chairs that have very demonstrably shown for five years running now that these products are safe, reliable, accessible, affordable, that people want them, that regulators like them. And we've shown that time and time again around the world that, that it does seem like a matter of time before we answer any remaining questions. And then it's clear that, that, again, American consumers are clamoring for this. And that's behind a lot of the decision making here on, on the issuer side and, and on the exchange side for, for why people are really interested in, in this, again, at a time when crypto has also grown up quite a bit. When it comes to assets, what is your sense of sort of U.S. institutional appetite? I mean, and what I mean by that is that how much demand is satisfied by a Bitcoin spot ETF? versus a Bitcoin spot ETF plus Ethereum ETFs versus those plus other asset ETFs. You know, like that's another kind of area where you are on the front lines of a lot of conversations and probably have a better beat on what specifically kind of looks of interest to this class of institutional investors. It's only going to be the major stuff at the beginning, which makes complete sense. There's two things to think about here. First is a size thing. If you're an institutional investor, you're not going to invest in smaller caps, crypto assets. And it's sort of like, it's a bit analogous to VC funding, right? Institutional investors feel much more comfortable investing in growth equity in sometimes public markets versus seed stage company, series A or series B company. And so if you look at every protocol, if you look at every crypto asset, and you sort of grade it on a development cycle. It's very clear that Bitcoin and Ethereum are very, very far along. We can demonstrably show revenues, usage. They're, they're, they're real ecosystems with, with a lot of um, companies that depend. Their entire livelihood depends on Ethereum. And so that has staying power and that attracts the institutional investors. And so size is definitely part of it. The other aspect is just an issue of time. And I think if you look at the top five or top 10 tech companies, private or public, in 1985 versus 1990 versus 2000 versus 2005 versus now, they ebb and flow and they're, and they're quite different. And so I'm a huge believer that for now, Bitcoin and Ethereum seem to be gathering a lot of attention, but we're creating something new where it's really hard to predict what will come. But I do believe something will come that will be 
at the same scale, if not larger, in um, out of the crypto ecosystem. But we we may not be sure exactly which one. I know that that Twenty One Co will have a product for every up and coming asset that that we're excited about. But we sort of can't really see yet where this is going, and 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 that for me is actually really exciting because we're still in the we're still not done with the development part. This is still going to get infinitely better. What are your sort of base cases for call it the next six months, 12 months, 18 months in terms of sort of, you know, your expectations around markets, around regulatory developments, whatever seem to be the kind of the, the key moments on, on those timescales? Yeah. So, so one last point on the previous question that I think is important is also the big assets tend to be gateways. So we end up selling a lot of Polkadot to customers that first bought Ethereum or Bitcoin and then learned more about crypto and then went deeper down the rabbit hole. And, and we upsell actually a tremendous amount there where it's actually one of our investors, Pomp, likes to say this thing about it's actually just about getting people off of zero percent allocation because we have shown that once you put the first dollar in, it's just a matter of time before you start allocating towards other areas as well as as you explore how exciting this is. Sorry, I wanted to make sure that, to, to cover this to cover this point. I forgot the other question. Sort of the the base case for the next 6 12 and 8. Oh yeah. So I think that there's more regulations coming. This is not necessarily a bad thing. In in some cases we're trying to be very careful about making sure that we uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak that we have sensible regulations that, that enables innovation and safeguard for, for consumers. There's so much overlap and connections between the traditional world and crypto that people don't actually realize uh, just how big the scale of it can be. There's a lot of focus on security tokens, as there should be, and we're all very excited about them. But there should be an even bigger focus on like infrastructure, on what it means to drive traditional financial infrastructure on DeFi rails, what it means to insert stable coins into your processes. And we're seeing a lot of innovations coming out of that that make us very excited because ultimately we need better use cases, we need better applications, we need better UI and UX. I'm of the opinion that the infrastructure is, is very good and it's there. We need to now build on top of it and show what it, what it would actually take to, to gather all of that. It will take a while. I think I think it will end up taking um, a little bit of time here, but overall, with better regulations, with more cleanup of what we've witnessed in the last few years with respect to all the implosions and all the scams in crypto, uh, we should clearly be in a better place probably in a couple of years. I think 2024, I'm hoping, is better, um, but I think 2025 is what I am personally really excited about. And where I see a lot of uh, things start to come together. Awesome. Well, listen, super interesting to get your take on this. You know, I think five years is, uh, and particularly these five years, is a, a long time to have direct on the ground experience, especially with uh, with the particular set of people you are. So fascinating to see how things have changed or haven't changed, contra to, to some narratives. And best of luck with future applications. And excited to uh, to have another conversation in a few months when things look even better than they do right now. Looking, looking forward to it. We'll talk about our tokens next time because we'll have a bunch of them out in addition to all the ETF stuff. Perfect. Love it. Thank you.
All right, guys, back to NLW for just a super quick wrap up. If you listen to my interview with Dan Tapiero, I guess a month or two ago now on the main breakdown show, you might have heard some similar themes when it comes to perhaps the counter narrative lack of institutional investor freakout around the crises of the crypto industry of the last year and a half. Basically, in that episode, Dan said that institutional investors had been far less concerned and paper handed than it might seem from outside or than people might have expected. And that's basically exactly what Hanny said as well. The fact that in about half of their products, they're near all-time highs in terms of the number of coins being held underneath suggests a real resilience that I think is a powerful testament to, frankly, the template that Bitcoin and crypto investors have set for traditional finance investors coming into the space. You probably heard me discuss this in my conversation with Hanny, but I do think that Bitcoiners in particular have set a template of an unimpeachable psychological bottom that will be protected, basically no matter what, that has become the bedrock for not just Bitcoin, but every successful crypto asset in the space. It's a really interesting phenomenon and one of the things that makes this industry so unique. Anyway, I appreciate having the chance to get some on-the-ground insights from people who are dealing day in, day out with institutional investors, especially given how much that's shaping the narrative right now. So one more big thanks to Hanny for coming on the show. Another thanks to my sponsor in Wolf's Clothing, wolfnyc.com, to learn about their accelerator for Bitcoin and Lightning startups. And of course, a big thanks to you guys for listening. Until next time, let's build. Let's build.